How does the training and practice of Chinese medicine change depending on one's location? What is the difference in patient expectations, in scopes of practice, and in lineage versus institutional training and licensing? And what is really behind the supposed contrast between biomedicine, perceived as instantly effective and ideal for emergencies and serious conditions, versus Chinese medicine, supposedly being slow medicine for chronic conditions and far too often seen as a benign complementary treatment? In today's episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond, titled Compassionate Practice, we're talking to Daniel Altschuler. Having lived and studied Chinese medicine for many years in Taiwan, he has been practicing and teaching in Seattle for the past 18 years and also travels to Nepal each year to treat patients there through his nonprofit. So he's the perfect person to give us some new perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Sabina Williams, and I'm joined as usual by Leo Locke, resident purveyor of multiple perspectives at the Pebble in the Cosmic Pond podcast, where we share old and new stories about China's healing traditions and about medicine in heaven and on earth and in the sweet spot in between. Before we get into the conversation, I'd like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to stay in touch. Also, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can. Lastly, are you tired of waiting until the next new moon for the next episode to drop? Do you want to join us for the second half of this conversation? And do you want to support my work through a financial contribution? Well... In that case, I invite you to join my Imperial Tutor Mentorship, where you can listen each month to the exclusive follow-up Imperial Tutorial episodes that drop every full moon, in addition to receiving all sorts of other benefits, like weekly translations and live tea time talks. Find out more and sign up at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. And now enjoy this episode. Thanks. Well, thanks, Daniel, for becoming part of the um, seven fools of the bamboo grove. I don't think we can call ourselves sages. And I know you jumped right in when I invited you a while ago. You were all excited. You wanted to be part of the seven fools. So here you are finally. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. I feel very foolish, of course. That's the intention. Have we decided which fool I am? (laughs) It's your choice. (laughs) I always like the naked fool sitting in the house. I I guess I don't know them that well. Is that the one who had the ants crawling in his pants? There's there's the sage who uh, some official came and knocked on his door. And when the sage opened his door, he was butt naked. And the official said, what are you doing naked. He goes, well, what are you doing in my pants, basically? Okay, so it's kind of <laughs> yeah, like similar. My yeah. house is like my pants. What are you doing in my pants? <laughs> Leo, which one are you? 
<laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> We're the, the Pacific Northwest version of the Seven Fools. Anyway, so, so Leo, well, I would go like for to it. start today's yeah. podcast with uh, some questions for Daniel because some of you might not know that Daniel has a very unique experience in Chinese medicine, right? He, he first apprenticed with one of the very famous physician in Taiwan, and then he came back to America and taught for many years and practiced in North America. And he also has a charity work in Nepal, which he's about to uh, get on a plane. And, you know, he's volunteered with his, some of his uh, people to uh, treat people outside of Kathmandu in Nepal. So he's somebody, in my opinion, who has a very unique experience in practicing Chinese medicine in three very different countries and societies, right? In Taiwan, in Seattle, and in Nepal. So my curiosity is, what has your experience been, Daniel, in practicing in three different places? What does the local culture, the social norms, how does that change or express the different aspects of Chinese medical practice. So that's my curiosity. You know, do you practice differently in one place than the other? You know, does the people of one place bring out an, a different aspect of Chinese medicine or ways of practice you wouldn't have done in another country? Leo, that's a huge question. Um, I'd have to take that apart. It'll take me a long time to wade through that. I, I would say that my training in Taiwan, that's where I started learning medicine. So I didn't adapt my medicine or learn a new medicine in Taiwan. That was my start. Uh, I didn't know medicine before that. I was there 15 years and uh, I, mostly just one teacher. I didn't really wander around and have a lot of mentors, a couple, but mostly just one. So it wasn't just one culture of medicine in a, I mean, one country culture of medicine, but also one teacher's culture of medicine. And so in many ways, it's very narrow in that sense and very focused, but I'm not even sure where I'm going with that. But I guess what I learned was what I thought medicine was. And I didn't really have a lot of other contexts in a certain way. So I don't know you as well. And Leo, I think you were Daniel's student, right? Yeah, many Is moons that... ago. Yes. What a great <laughs> connection. And then I just met Daniel because you came to the, the opening of the Tibetan temple and you looked me up, right, on Whidbey Island. I think I was actually trying to... Uh, be in touch when you were in Oregon. I, I came down to Portland a few times and you were always gone when I tried yeah. to knock on your door. So this is really interesting for me too, just to hear about your background. I'm always really interested in where people get their training. So you didn't start your Chinese medicine training in the US. You went to, correct me if I'm wrong here, you went to Taiwan to study Chinese or just whatever, and then you just happened to start studying medicine in Taiwan with this one particular doctor? Pretty much. I was a graduate student in Asian studies. I was uh, okay. focusing on, on Taoist and Buddhist studies. Uh, at the time, I was at UCLA in my graduate work. Uh, and I just finished up the master's 
uh, portion and planning to transition into the PhD program, but I wanted a year off. I was actually quite young compared to my colleagues. Most of my colleagues in, in the graduate program had already had quite a bit of experience between their undergraduate and their graduate degrees. They had been to, you know, the, the Asian country of their choosing, you know, Korea, uh, a lot of Korean uh, graduate students because my professor was a specialist in Korean Buddhism. But mm -hmm. anyway, I felt very young and inexperienced, so I wanted to just take a year off. And I went to Taiwan, the Stanford Center, the language program was on the campus of National Taiwan University, the Taida campus at the time. So that's what I enrolled in to do some advanced Chinese language studies. But uh, I also always had this interest in Chinese medicine. I've done martial arts since high school, and I've had a, a little bit of experience with American acupuncture here and there, not too much, but just a little bit. And I thought it would be something really cool to learn. And so when I was in Taiwan, uh, I didn't know anything, I didn't know anybody, but I thought it would be a fun thing to to just learn some basics, you know, just like any average American, I didn't know much about Chinese medicine other than acupuncture, right? That it was some magical stick people here and something happens. And so I just went and shopped for a teacher. I, I literally went to Chinese medical bookstores. There's a few around Taipei City. And, and I went in and I, I literally shopped for a teacher. Um, I asked the owners of these bookstores who teaches around here. And so that's how I found my teacher. And then I just started studying. And I didn't know how deep and rich it was until my teacher, uh, Dr. Lee, Li Zhengyu, he uh, knew that I could read Chinese. So he told me, just go, there was a bookstore right across the street from him, around the corner. So he said, he wrote the name of a book, and he said, go over there and just read this book. And that's how I got into it, just by reading, uh, not much clinical, just reading, and uh, reading and reading and more reading. And then the more that time went on, I spent more time in the clinic, maybe a few hours a week, and then it became a few days a week. And then I was actually there seven days a week. And so that's, that's how I got into Chinese medicine. I didn't expect to do it. I didn't expect it to be a profession. Um, I, I'm still not even sure what I'm doing here. So that's, that's how I got started. So it sounds like the traditional um, apprenticeship model, as opposed to the institutional training. Very much apprenticeship based. When I was there, there was no clear avenue for a non-Chinese or a non-Taiwanese citizen to enroll in any school. There's only one school in uh, Taichung, uh, in the center of Taiwan. There's only one school one Chinese medical school for the entire country. And it was not open for foreigners at that time. I wasn't considering being a medical student anyway, but uh, that, that option wasn't really available. So it was purely, purely uh, apprenticeship-based. And then you eventually came back oh. to the U.S.? <laughs> <laughs> so then, <laughs> eventually, year after year passed, um, my graduate school 
started to move more into the background uh, as you know something to pursue that direction and after about four or five years I started thinking maybe I should actually make this a profession and I started looking at the NCCAOM AOM exams and started studying for those I took those in 1996 uh, and because I just felt I needed to have that uh, and then I stayed another 10 years in Taiwan after that uh, still studying and practicing I I went to the radiation oncology department and I apprenticed I sort of I'm not really apprenticed but I observed in there uh, and that got me uh, directed towards an oncology specialty uh, working with the radiation oncologist there and then I ended up also pursuing a PhD in uh, Guangzhou because some of the Taiwanese uh, teachers they all went as a group to arrange um, classes through the Guangzhou Zhongyao Dashui, the Chinese Medical University of Guangzhou. So it was all very unplanned and it just kind of happened. And then you came back to America. What happened? And then <laughs> what happened? You left the land of perfect jiaozi. What were you thinking, Daniel? <laughs> well, you know, um, I th I think it's the common problem. You know, when you're a foreigner in a foreign country, they don't have all the rules laid out uh, for you, and most of the I'm just going to use foreigners as a you know, in the way that the. Taiwanese and Chinese <laughs> tend to use it, right? It's a very broad term. And there was, at, as far as I know, at the time I was there, no other foreigner had applied or tried to take the exams there. Um, when I, I had applied for the exams, the Taiwanese Chinese medical exams, uh, but they were, they, they had never had a non- overseas Chinese foreigner apply for the exams. And there was actually a rule that allowed that to happen, but they had never seen that rule before. I actually hired a lawyer to find out how to do that. Uh, but even when I walked in to the Department of Health and the Department of Education and showed them the rules, they, they were like, what is this? You know, you still can't take the exam. And it was there was a lot of reasons for it, but anyway, I wasn't ultimately wasn't able to sit for the exam. Whether I could have passed it or not, I have no idea. But I wasn't able to take the exams, and so my my future as a professional physician in Taiwan was it was not going to happen, and so I needed to look for other options. And so in Seattle, uh, what was you know it's now seen, but it was then Siam Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine and Bastyr University, both of them offered me several classes each. Um, and so I, I felt that was a good opportunity. You know, when, you, when you're moving back to a country and you've never done a clinic before, you have no patients, no money. So it was a really good way to land. And that's how I ended up back in the States and in, in Seattle. So I was able to, you know, bring my family back. I was very sad to leave. I had a lot of anxiety. It was it was very depressing. I love I love Taiwan. It's a wonderful place to live. Uh, easy to make friends, and you can go to the airport, and all the destinations are amazing places like Bali and Thailand and China, Tokyo. 
you know, kind of when you go to the airport in the Seattle, the destinations are Topeka, Kansas, and Indiana, you know, <laughs> which are not horrible, but not the exotic draw of, you know, going to Bali, for example, in five-hour flight. So, yeah, it was very difficult to leave. I still have many dear friends, and I try to get back a lot, but uh, Seattle is where I landed, and it's been a, also a very good place. A lot of amazing practitioners up here. So, so the curiosity is looking back now. You know, you've been back in the States for uh, 15 years or so, right? More than that. Six, Coming on 18 now. 18 now. Yeah, almost two yeah. decades. And then 15 years in Taiwan. So there's where my curiosity is. What's the difference? The patients, the kind of uh, clinical issues that you encounter, patient care, patients' expectations, all that kind of stuff. How is it different? It's a huge difference. That's that's uh, a really, really important question, I think, for um, both practitioners and, uh, and patients to hear. The patient that would go to my teacher's clinic, and I'll just use my teacher as, you know, it's what I know the best, but I think this is true throughout, uh, let's just say China and Taiwan. I don't really want to speak for Korea or Japan. I know their traditions and their cultures in the medical world less. But when a patient came to my teacher with any kind of a problem, whether it's catching a cold or cancer or autoimmune, whatever, they're going to my teacher expecting some sort of cure, not palliative. They're, they're hoping, expecting or hoping that my teacher's going to offer some magical potion and that they will get better after time, after money, after effort, right? I don't feel that in the States, or at least in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that's a legal scope of practice issue. That's also a cultural issue. It's an educational issue. Um, it's what patients bring to the practitioners. It's also what practitioners bring to the patients, uh, the messages back and forth. And the idea here, in contrast, of a patient coming to me or calling me on the phone the day of the appointment and canceling, saying, I can't make my appointment today because I'm sick. I have to go to blank other doctor. So it could be a naturopath, it could be a MD, could be all you know, even their uh, spiritual healer, right? All kinds of people that are going to cure their disease, but somehow I'm not the person to do that. And and so that is I think a, a very strong educational piece that I've tried to um, bring out to when I teach, tell my students that yes, you are there to help your patients. You don't need to you don't, you don't need to pick up the pieces from somebody else or just be a sideline person. You need to put it out there that you have these tools. I think one of the biggest contrasts is, is the um, expectations of a patient and uh, of what you can do and what you should do. Can I jump in here? This is really interesting to me. And Leo, you know this, I've brought this up in a, in a previous um, conversation. I'm reading a book that's called Prescriptions of Virtuosity, the Post-Colonial Struggle for Chinese Medicine by Eric Karchmer. And I'm really enjoying it. And he's making this point that the 
biggest difference between Chinese medicine and Western medicine that he, somebody who went to China to get his Chinese medicine education, he was kind of like you. He was a medical anthropologist going to China to do research. And then he just, his research happened to be in Chinese medicine and he really enjoyed it. And then he ended up being a clinician because he decided that he loved the Chinese medicine more than he loved being a medical anthropologist. So he kind of went back and forth. But he makes this really important point, which I think is very true. And I would love to hear both of your takes, Leo, from you too, as somebody who is really knowledgeable in, in historical Chinese medicine, that this distinction that we have now in China and in the West, and maybe Taiwan is different, which is what I'm kind of hearing between the lines, Daniel, that we... Th have accepted this huge contrast that Western medicine is for emergencies. Western medicines is immediate, quick results. It's where you go when you're really sick and you need something right away. Whereas with Chinese medicine, it's for chronic conditions. So you don't expect immediate visible results. And what he's saying is that that comes out of this post-colonial struggle of Chinese in communist China. The Chinese doctors, the Chinese profession, trying to set themselves apart from biomedicine as a profession in their own right and really navigating that post-colonial environment of, of how do we deal with science, how do we deal with the difference between anatomical models, physiologic models of the body and all of that. And they settled on this big difference between slow medicine and fast medicine, that biomedicine is fast medicine and Chinese medicine is just slow. And what struck me about your comment just now was that maybe there's a contrast between medicine in Taiwan, which did not go through the communist revival or the creation of TCM, and Taiwanese practice? There could be. Um, it's in, that's really interesting. My sense about that particular, I, I want to say propaganda piece, actually, is sure. that it was, and I, and I haven't studied this. This is just my understanding, so yeah. I'd be very interested to read that book, is that it came even in the Nationalist Army, the, the Kuomintang, yeah. before the Communists, where they were trying to industrialize uh, after the fall of the Qing dynasty, 1911, 12, they wanted to industrialize and become Western, right? A lot of the leaders had studied in Russia and Europe, and they knew they adopted Christianity, Catholicism, all, all of that stuff. And, and they wanted to industrialize and shed away the old. And this yeah. is pre-communist culture revolution. And so they wanted to get rid of Chinese medicine uh, just as much as in the Culture Revolution, Mao wanted to get rid of it also. But for different reasons, it was saved. And in the uh, KMT, the Kuomintang, uh, it was saved uh, by a few doctors who petitioned the government and kept it alive. And in the communist era, Mao Zedong had a change of heart and realized that Chinese medicine would be a very economic way to bring medicine to the countryside and 
tied in with the barefoot doctors and all that. And there are definitely scholars that know the history better than I do. But one of the propaganda pieces that I heard heard came from that time was exactly that. Chinese medicine is slow and Western medicine is fast and and other things too that, that I would repeat even before I knew Chinese medicine, I had heard those things and thought that was just know the truth. If you break a bone, you go to the Western doctor. If you want long-term rebuilding of your health and cultivation of your health, you go to the Chinese doctor. Um, But that's so far from true. I don't think it's a Chinese, Taiwanese, or communist uh, Republic of China thing. Um, In both cases, you have these amazing uh, national treasures, really top-line doctors that wield potions and needles that can do so many amazing things. I think the trouble also comes because not every doctor in China or Taiwan or any source country are that good. You know, most doctors are mediocre. They're, they're good, but they're not awesome. And of course, a lot of, you know, there's the bad ones too. Just, just because they're Chinese doctors from China doesn't mean that they're awesome doctors, right? There's all kinds of levels. And, and so if you're able to experience the practice, the medicine, if you're able to observe one of the real masters doing their job and you're able to follow them over a period of a year, I remember uh, I, I sat in with uh, Yang Weijie in Taiwan way back. Uh, I think he's in the States now, right? But mm-hmm. I remember him saying very clearly, it's like, if you follow a teacher, follow him for a year, at least, because you can see how the teacher transforms or changes the treatment based on the seasonal changes and different things. And you get to follow the patients and and so forth. And so if you really get to experience a teacher for that time and, and start to learn the techniques or the formulas, uh, and see how the patients respond to that. Then you re- then you can really get to see how the, um, the high level medicine can do things like bring people out of comas. Re- you know, uh, get uh, ha- have cancer start to uh, respond to treatments. You know, I mean nothing's miraculous necessarily, but you know you know you get a a high percentage of tumors starting to shrink or autoimmune systems. You know gradually waning. These are things that are commonplace among the good doctors. My teacher is also a bone setter. And so we would have people coming in off the street, you know, with broken bones. And not often because people usually go to the emergency room, but he'd have all these uh, splints and, and it kind of looks like they're coming out of middle-aged Europe. I mean, just really crude instruments, but really effective, not crude instruments, um, crude looking splints, you know, something you might um, see in like a Boy Scout book or something, but they were really effective. And, and, you know, these bones would get uh, mended and um, completely healed in, in at least half the time, if not faster than just a conventional cast and no other treatment. So, the things that I was able to witness in, in my teacher's clinic was um, was at a level that uh, I don't think that everybody gets to 
experience. So maybe I'm a little bit off track with, with the original question, but I, I think the problem about the perception of Chinese medicine is not necessarily sourced in Western prejudiced or skewed understanding about traditional medicines. It comes from within the Chinese culture that itself, and that has spread out to, to the world. And even now, like in Taiwan, the Chinese and the Western doctors have the same kind of contention and distrust about each other than we do in the U.S. It's the same kind of, uh, like, why do you want to see that kind of doctor? They're not going to help you on both, both sides, right? And, and so it very much mirrors how it is in the U.S., you know, you have these private practices and two different types of doctors that are you know, not always compatible or, or in complete coordination with each other. So here's my next question for Daniel. <laughs> I really appreciate you bringing up these, these really precious experience. So am I right in assuming that then, of course, you would want to impart these impressions and these understandings, as you have just described to us, to your students in the United States, because you've been here teaching for 18 years now, right? So what kind of challenges or um, insights have you encountered in all these years of trying to transmit this, these impressions and these understandings and these uh, vista of what Chinese medicine can do, how has that process been for you? Obviously, there's a scope of practice issue. So that is insurmountable. You know, it is what it is, right? I mean, even in Asian countries, you have different scopes of practice based on the politics of whatever times these laws are decided, right? Um, in the States, it's very interesting because each state has a different scope of practice for Chinese medicine. In some places, your primary care and in other places, you're maybe one step higher than a dog walker in terms of your social respect or something like that. But um, not not to put anything on dog walkers, but just in terms of the medical hierarchy, it can vary quite a lot. Uh, so that's uh, that's an inevitable issue. Um, and I and I think there's also uh, training, right? If you're considered to be a primary care physician. Regardless of your tools, you definitely have more clinical responsibilities, and which not every person wants. Not every MD wants to be responsible for missing something in a blood lab, for example. You know, it's there's a lot of pressure to to be there. So I think there's a lot of factors involved with when I teach and like how how I express that. Um, ability to kind of do your best and be, be the best that you can. It sounds like maybe, is, is that like a advertisement for, for the military maybe? <laughs> but be the best you can be. But it's true. I think when you read the textbooks, you have uh, sections, for example, in the Materia Medica, the English Materia Medica, you have a lot of herbs that are designated as obsolete. Um, right, and some of that's because of the inability, like musk, for example, or uh, the endangered species problem. Right, that's fair. And then there's the herbs that are highly toxic, like cinnabar, for example. 
uh, realgar, you know, all these herbs that are dangerous to use. And so they're not taught anymore. And when I teach herbs or I teach a Wen Bing class very regularly, and, and the herbs that are the formulas like Jirbao Dan and all of these Angong Niuhuang Wan, all these formulas and herbs that are used to save somebody's life, like the last minute, like this is what we can do for you. I still teach those herbs. I don't make students necessarily memorize them, but I say, this is a tradition and this is the potential for where we can be. We're not just a medicine to help the worried well, right? We're also a medicine that can save somebody's life. Whether or not that's accessible to you in your clinic, in your state, it, maybe you're in the field sometime, or maybe you change to another country, or, or maybe the political climate changes. You should know that you have the potential in your field of medicine to be a full-service medicine, and your tradition also is able to save lives, right? And I remind people that Chinese medicine is not an alternative medicine 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago. It was the only medicine. And when you go to a doctor in some village in China, whether they're good or bad, you're hoping that they're going to save your life, right? And they potentially have the tools to do that. And I'm not saying we all have to be heroic Chinese medical doctors. I'm just saying that in our tradition, our potential is full. And we don't have to feel emotionally that we're not able to be part of the medical culture in a respectable way. I don't know if, if that makes sense or not. <laughs> it makes perfect sense from my experience of being and living in places like you're, and the irony is of Seattle, where people have like hundreds of, they have such a choice in healthcare providers and medical paradigms, and they can go to this for that and to this for that, so they can really choose. But if you're in a place where you're really remote, you, you don't really care what the doctor, what the local healer or the local herbalist, you don't care what they call themselves or how how they're licensed, right? If if you're in a small rural community, whether you're in the middle, like I once almost died from dysentery on a little island in the middle nowhere in the Philippines, or or when you fall off the horse in Mongolia, it doesn't, the, the medical paradigm, it, you just go to whoever is there. So it's funny that you're teaching your students Which this in the middle of Seattle. And I'm really glad because <laughs> as a medical anthropologist and a historian, that's certainly what Chinese medicine has always been. And I think that that book, The Prescriptions of Virtuosity, makes this point that that was the case in China really until the 1950s, that that separation of Chinese medicine is for this and Western medicine is for that. That wasn't the case. It, it's a very recent phenomenon, actually, that we think of Chinese medicine as something that's not effective, that, that's compartmentalized, that a Chinese medicine doctor is not your everyday doctor who can do everything. So it's great that you're reminding your students of that. I think that's really wonderful and important. Yeah, you know, my teacher would always say, and, and I have to say, one of the amazing things about my teacher uh, is that his best buddies, his um, drinking buddy, you know, where he goes out to dinner and 
and regularly are all Western doctors. They're the best Western doctors in, in Taipei. I mean, high class, world class doctors. Um, very rarely will you see him inviting other Chinese doctors to hang out. I mean, he knows them all, and you're, you know he's friendly with them all. But his buddies of like thirty, forty years are all Western doctors, and his understanding of medicine is that Chinese and West Chinese medicine. Let's just use these broad terms because in China that's how they say it, Zhongxi, right? Chinese and Western medicine are the same. All medicines are the same. The tools are a little different. The diagnosis. Tools and the treatment tools are a little different, but we're all—it's still a human system, and we need to respect all the medicines. They're all working on the same for the same goal. In Western medicine, you have tools that are accessible to people of certain licenses, right? You have MRIs and CAT scans and you know surgical tools. It's just a certain training, and you get a certain license. But it's still a medicine. It's not. Be fundamentally different in a certain essential way, and with Chinese medicine, we should be fully cognizant of medicine—the broader word, medicine—but know our strengths and know how we can use our part and do our part in that. You know, acupuncture, herbs, bleeding, moxa, whatever we're doing. I grew up in my Chinese medical training with a very healthy respect for all the medicines. If you can have a compatibility among everybody, then it's really amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, here are a couple of suggestions for learning more. First, remember to subscribe to my newsletter at happygoodproductions.com connect to stay in touch. I do strive to offer a healthy balance of free and paid information there. Also, if you liked this episode, please rate, review, and share our podcast. And join the conversation on our Pebble in a Cosmic Pond Facebook group, if you feel like it. And then, if you can't wait until the next new moon for the next episode to drop... Why don't you join my Imperial Tutor Mentorship to listen to the exclusive Imperial Tutorial follow-up episodes that drop every full moon? In addition, you also receive a cultural and historical introduction to each month and three original translations by me of a classical, a medieval, and a surprise text on Chinese medicine spaced a week apart. Often related directly to what we're talking about in the podcast. And you get to join my live Tea Time Talks. Find out more about the cultural roots of your medicine at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. And now go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth. <laughs>